Dear people of God, more than 50 years ago, in August 1965, I was a graduate student in Amsterdam, and I bought a book. It was written in German, and it was entitled Letzte Briefe zum Tode Verurteilte, Last Letters of People Condemned to Death from 1939 to 1945. I have kept this book all these years. Here it is. Letzte Briefe zum Tode Verurteilte. As the title indicates, it is a collection of actual letters written by people condemned to death during the World, Second World War because of their opposition to Nazism and the German occupation forces. As you can imagine, many of these letters are very moving. They are addressed to loved ones at a time when their writers are facing imminent death. They speak of love, of courage, of fear, of nobility, of betrayal. Almost all speak of what the writers consider most important in human, human life, and they reflect a wide range of life perspectives, from Christianity to communism to various kinds of nationalism. In the face of death, people tend to concentrate on what is most important to them, and they leave a message for their loved ones who are left behind. In the Bible, there are two books which can be classified as last letters of people condemned to death. One is the second epistle of the apostle Peter, and the other is the second epistle of the apostle Paul to Timothy, the letter from, from which we have just read a passage. Paul's situation at that time was that he was again in prison in Rome. He had been in prison there before, as we read in the closing verses of the book of Acts, but apparently at that time he had been released from that earlier imprisonment and allowed to carry on his apostolic ministry again for some time. During that time, we know he visited Ephesus and Crete, and he wrote the letters we now know as 1 Timothy and Titus. But now he was imprisoned in Rome again, and this time he does not expect to be released. In fact, he expects to be executed. Listen to what he writes in chapters four, chapter 4 of this letter. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. A few verses later, he writes about his own trial before a Roman judge shortly before. Again, this is what he writes. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. That's verses 16 and 18 from chapter 4. 
When he says that he was delivered from the lion's mouth, this does not mean that he was acquitted and set free, but only that his execution was postponed. Paul expects to die shortly, and in and through his death, to be rescued from every evil attack and to be brought safely to God's heavenly kingdom. Paul is writing his letters to Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus at that time, and asks him to come to Rome to visit him before it is too late, especially since Paul's co-workers in Rome had left or abandoned him. This is what Paul writes to Timothy. Do your best to come quickly, for Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. It is clear that Paul is in a very difficult situation. He is in prison. His friends have left him. He is facing death. It is in that context that we must understand the passage we read together, and particularly the words of verse 12. Paul urges Timothy to keep preaching the gospel and to expect suffering as a result. The gospel is about grace, and by that grace, Paul himself has been called to be a proclaimer of the gospel. And then we get the words of verse 12, which is our text. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. And some of us may be familiar with the older King James Version of the last first part of this verse, which has been used as the refrain of a well-known hymn. But I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. We'll be singing that hymn a little later in the service. Let's dig a little deeper into the words of verse 12. Essentially, it is a double confession of faith as an antidote to suffering and shame. Let me say that again. Essentially, it is a double confession of faith as an antidote to suffering and shame. The suffering is Paul's current situation, being imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, abandoned by his friends, and facing death. And part of that suffering is the shame associated with being treated as a common criminal. But against that suffering and that shame, Paul offers as an antidote his double confession of faith, knowing Christ and being sure about the future. We will first look at that double confession and then return to how it relates to the suffering and shame. The first part of the confession is both simple and profound. I know whom I have believed. A better translation might be, I know in whom I have put my trust, so the NRSV, to emphasize that this is a present reality for Paul. It's not not just something in the past, it's real for him now. 
He knows the person he has put his trust in, namely Jesus Christ. And that person has proved himself to be utterly trustworthy. Though death may be imminent, he can entrust himself to Jesus Christ, who will see him through. In this simple affirmation, I know whom I have believed, or I know in whom I have put my trust, Paul puts his finger on the heart of Christianity. Christianity is centrally about the person of Christ. Christianity is fundamentally not about ideas, but about a person. It is not primarily a philosophy or ideology, not even a worldview, a system of doctrine, or a set of moral precepts. It is fundamentally faith in a person, a relationship, faith in a person and what he has done for us and will do for us to make us new creatures. It is in the first place about a personal relationship, a being in Christ, and only in the second place does it also involve distinctive ideas, a creed, and a code of ethics. Ideas are important in Christianity, crucial even, but they are secondary to their relationship to the person of Christ and our trust in him. And what goes for ideas goes for feelings too. Spiritual highs and feelings of exaltation and happiness are great, but they are subordinate to trusting the person of Jesus Christ and embracing him in faith. Christianity is not defined by how you feel, but by who you believe in. The second part of Paul's confession is not quite as straightforward and needs a little explanation, so bear with me. In the NIV version, which we read together, it reads, I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. But in the RSV, the Bible translation that we used to use before adopting the NIV, this sentence reads as follows. I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This sounds very different. In the one version, what Christ will guard until that day, that is the, the great day of Christ's return, is what I have entrusted to him. But in the other version, it is what has been entrusted to me, which sounds like the very opposite. The explanation is that the original Greek says literally that Christ will guard my deposit, using a word that means something that someone entrusts or commits to another for safekeeping, like money in the bank. So my deposit could mean either something that I entrust or commit to God, namely my commitment to him, or it could mean something that God entrusts or commits to me, namely the gospel or the teaching of the apostles. Which interpretation is correct? I personally think it is probably the second, which speaks of what has been entrusted to me, because Paul uses the same expression two verses later when he says to Timothy, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you, where the Greek is literally guard the good deposit. Elsewhere, too, Paul uses that same word to refer to the so-called deposit of faith, meaning the apostolic teaching contained in the New Testament. 
But whichever interpretation we choose, this second part of Paul's confession refers to God guarding a deposit defined by faith in some sense, whether that means our personal faith commitment or faith as the teaching of the apostles. Until the day of Christ's return, he will guarantee that faith will endure. There is solid hope for the future. So we could sum up the two parts of Paul's confession as trust and hope. Trust in the person of Jesus Christ and hope, that is confident expectation, that he will ensure that faith will endure. Now, it is this double confession of trust and hope that Paul offers as an antidote to the suffering and shame associated with his personal situation at that time. He is suffering for the gospel by being imprisoned, by being left behind by his friends and co-workers, and especially by having to face the imminence of his own death. And although he says, I am not ashamed, the latest revision of the NIV here reads, this is no cause for shame, it is nevertheless true that his situation at that time was one that was associated with shame. He was being treated as a common criminal, worthy of death. And he was probably regarded as an irrational fanatic, someone who believed in dead people coming back to life, and in the cosmic saving power of another obscure criminal who had been executed just a few years earlier in Palestine, namely Jesus Christ. It's at this point that we see clearly how this verse applies to our lives today. For we too are Christ believers, and we too need the antidote of trust and hope to the suffering and shame that we experience. The text invites us to identify with Paul's double confession as a way to counter the hardships we endure today and the shame and ridicule to which we are exposed today. Although we in our part of the world are not suffering active persecution because of our Christian faith, we need to remember two things. Many of our fellow Christians in other parts of the world, places like North Korea, Turkey, China, and the Sudan, do suffer for their faith. And we ourselves do experience other kinds of suffering we are often not aware that the persecution of Christians is alive and well in our own day. It has been calculated that more Christians have been persecuted for their faith in the last hundred years than all the persecuted Christians of the pre preceding centuries put together. The scale of this persecution, including not only execution and imprisonment, but also harassment, discrimination, intimidation, and social stigmatization of various kinds is immense. Nor can we be sure that the less brutal kinds of persecution may not become a reality in our own country in the foreseeable future. Already in Canada today, there have been cases where people have spent years in jail for protesting against abortion out of a Christian commitment. But generally speaking, we are blessed to live in a country of religious freedom. 
and one where being a Christian does not prevent us from doing well politically, economically, academically, and socially. And the positive influence of the gospel is still pervasive in our national culture, even though it is weakening. But thankfully, we cannot speak of persecution that remotely resembles what many of our brothers and sisters elsewhere have to suffer. But that does not mean that we in Canada or the West in general are strangers to suffering. We too are part of the fallen creation and we too face sickness, death, betrayal, abandonment, just as the Apostle Paul did and just as every human individual has done since Adam's fall. And of course, the Apostle Paul was not the only one who had to face death. We all do. Whether we are young or old, struggling with illness or in good health, death can be just around the corner. In our culture, we tend to avoid talking about death, but it was not always so, and it is not a a sign of spiritual health to pretend that we are not mortal. We do well to remind ourselves of what the author of the epistle to the Hebrews wrote many centuries ago, man is destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. We too need an antidote to the suffering and death we experience in this world, the antidote of trust and hope centered in Christ. This text invites us to make Paul's confession our own, to put our trust in Christ, who can carry us through the pain and anguish of this life and even through death itself. It also invites us to embrace the hope that Christ will guard our deposit of faith until he returns, regardless how precisely we understand that deposit. And of course, we have to deal with shame as well, which is really a special kind of suffering. Just as the crowds in Jerusalem at Pentecost sneered at the teaching of the apostles and said they were full of new wine, they were drunk. And just as the philosophers in Athens scoffed at Paul when Paul started talking about Christ's resurrection in Acts 17, so we too are exposed to ridicule and mockery when we say that we believe in the virgin birth or that the human race descended from Adam and Eve or that sex should be restricted to marriage or that Jesus physically ascended to heaven. We live in a culture which is secularizing at a rapid rate, and the basic teachings of Christianity seem to many not only outmoded and unscientific, but bigoted and harmful. Today, as so often in the past, there is often shame associated with confessing the name of Christ. But the Apostle Paul teaches us to say, But I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard my deposit. This resounding double confession of faith of the Apostle Paul thus turns out to be one of the great nevertheless passages of Scripture, which assert the truth of God in the face of contradiction and opposition, Think of passages like the concluding verse of the book of Habakkuk, where after a grim depiction of total economic disaster, the prophet says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will be joyful in God my Savior. Or another text in this same letter by the Apostle Paul, where after predicting the coming, the coming of false teachers, he exclaims, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with the inscription, The Lord knows those who are his. The Bible is full of such nevertheless texts which speak of the certainty of faith in the face of the harsh realities that seem to contradict it. Such nevertheless texts can serve a very useful role in the life of the believer. They provide ammunition, so to speak, or perhaps we should say encouragement for situations that can cause us to doubt or be skeptical. They provide an antidote to the multiple ways that the realities of life can challenge the believer. So Paul's double confession of trust and hope can serve as an antidote not only to the suffering and shame that Paul was exposed to, but also to many other kinds of challenges that we may encounter in our life's journey. It is a kind of all-purpose challenge defeater, and therefore it is a confession that we would do well to memorize. Fortunately, as I mentioned earlier, many of us already have it memorized, at least in the King James Version, because it is the refrain of a well-known hymn. The hymn is called, I Know Not Why God's Wondrous Grace, and it is number 690 in the new hymnal, Lift Up Your Hearts. This hymn illustrates how Paul's double confession is an all-purpose challenge defeater, because in each of the four stanzas of that hymn, the refrain counters a different challenge. The challenges of the first two stanzas have to do with not, not knowing how the wonder of grace happens in a believer's life. But the fourth stanza has to do with not knowing the joys and sorrows which life may bring. In each case, the refrain counters the I know not of the opening line with the resounding but I know of Paul's confession. If you don't know the song, I suggest you sing it often because it will fix in your minds the words of this faith-building text of Scripture. Let us confess together with the Apostle Paul that we too know whom we have believed, and we are persuaded, that is, we are certain, that he is able to keep our deposit of faith until that day. To that, let us all as God's people say, Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for the testimony of your Apostle Paul. We thank you for the words that he wrote in prison in Rome many years ago. We thank you for his faith and his confidence as he faced death. And we pray that we may make his words and his confession our own, that we too may have the, the trust and the hope that will carry us through the difficulties of our lives. We ask it in the name of that same Jesus Christ. Amen.